this is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. I am here with a special episode of the Peds Ortho podcast, which is going to cover the topic of posterior column osteotomies. This is a collaboration with Jay Posna, or the Journal of the Pediatric Society of North America. And uh, the release of this was going to coincide with the release of their February installment. So there will be some online resources related to posterior column osteotomies in that release, and we will have links to those in the show notes. I also want to add that we will have our regular content and still have a February uh, Peds Ortho podcast episode, and our guest is going to be Derek Kelly from, from Campbell Clinic in Memphis, so please stay tuned for that later in the month. I do want to thank a few special individuals before we move on into the recording. Uh, namely the editors of the Jay Posner Journal, that's uh, Ken Noonan, J.R. Cruz, and uh, uh, Jen Bauer, uh, specifically for the spine subsection. And then um, I would do want to thank my uh, typical co-hosts of the podcast, that's uh, Carter Clement, Josh Holt, and Julia Sanders. Uh, in this case, they're not joining me, but that's only because I kind of went rogue uh, with this project, and I'm hoping it turns out well. Um, and standing in their place are uh, two wonderful individuals who helped me with producing this episode and this idea. And they'll introduce themselves later, but uh, Lorena Flacari and, um, and Ken Ellingworth, uh, thank you guys both for all your help. And without further ado, we will bring you the episode. Welcome everybody to the Peds Ortho podcast. Uh, this is Craig Lauer. I'll be one of your hosts for this evening. Uh, we have a special edition today about posterior column osteotomies and spine deformity surgery, in particular for uh, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. And um, I'm joined by two other hosts who helped me put this session together. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Lorena Fulcari. I'm currently at Akron Children's Hospital and excited to be here tonight. And I'm Ken Ellingworth, and I'm currently at uh, Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. Thank you guys for, uh, for helping me with this. Um, we also have four very special guests that we've selected to give a variety of opinions on the topic. And um, I didn't really brief you guys on this, but let's try and go in alphabetical order, see if we can figure this out. Last name. Hi, I'm uh, Hamish Crawford. I'm, uh, good afternoon for me. It's uh, 2.30 in the afternoon here in Auckland, New Zealand. I work at the Starship Children's uh, Hospital here. And then you cranked us all in with S's for the next portion. Of it. Yes. <laughs> That's where it gets challenging. Yeah, exactly. So I guess me with S-A becomes uh, Sanders. So I'm Jim Sanders, and I'm at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm Sukin Shah from Nemours Children's Health in Wilmington, Delaware. And I'm Dan Sicato. I'm at Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas. Awesome. Thank you guys all for making the time and joining us in this, this evening, this morning, this afternoon. Uh, wherever it is around the globe. And special thanks to Lorena for helping me sort out the time zones uh, as it made me very nervous when playing this webinar. So uh, we're actually going to get going. I, I'll just briefly say that this, I think that this is a relevant topic that's worth discussing. It comes up quite often in our meetings. Uh, I think a lot of surgeons early in practice and uh, me specifically have fluctuated quite a bit in deciding when to use posterior column osteotomies. I thought that this would be a great opportunity to share those ideas and uh, get a lot of different opinions from around the country because I think so often we hear about the opinions within our silos of training, and this would be a great opportunity to kind of spread our individual uh, experience with that. Um, and so we're actually going to start off with Lorena talking about uh, a little bit of the controversy, just as background for the audience. Yeah, so I would say that national trends have been increasing for use of uh, posterior column osteotomies, but it's really highly variable um, as some surgeons use them routinely in basically all cases of kyphosis and scoliosis, whereas other surgeons use them very sparingly. Um, so the data has been relatively um, variable in both biomechanical studies and clinical studies, with some studies showing improved correction in all three planes and other studies showing minimal um, clinical benefit in, in really any of the planes. Um, and there have also been different reports on the risks, including operative time, bleeding, and then potential for increased neuromonitoring um, changes. So that has led to a lot of controversy and variability in practices. So we look forward to um, the panelists' discussion tonight regarding all of these factors. Thanks, Lorena. And then Ken was going to just briefly summarize for the audience uh, the basics of the techniques 
And um, we'll actually want to get all of your opinions on how you do that or modify those techniques. Yeah, so this is uh, Ken Ellingworth. So the, the, the two main techniques that are currently out there, are ones that we classify as the traditional posterior column osteotomy, uh, which, which involves a complete resection of the ligamentum flavum using a kerosene rongeur, as well as resection of the superior articular process with your kerosene rongeur to, for completion of your posterior column osteotomy. These are the ones that I would classify as your traditional technique. Uh, as we technology advances, you know, we get more tools in our belt and the, the implementation of the ultrasonic bone scalpel has made a, its way into a lot of our operating rooms. And I certainly use it in every single one of my cases for my facetectomies, but that has also been translated to the posterior column osteotomy for what we have described as the modified release posterior column osteotomy, where you use the ultrasonic bone scalpel for a resection of the superior articular process. And then that's a plus or minus whether you're doing a further resection of the ligamentum flavum uh, with your uh, standard uh, kerosene rongeur. And so at this time, I think it's prudent to kind of pull the experts, the guru gurus, if you will, and uh, see what technique that they tend to use or what technique are they leaning towards in terms of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, traditional or kind of the modified technique. Ken, can I just ask a quick question? Sure, sure, sure. Fine. So, so one, the, a variant on that technique that I've heard is that people sometimes will do the cut of the superior articular process and leave it in place. And I'm not, and then, so I, I would add that sort of to the discussion on what people do. Yeah, I think, I think you bring up a great point, Dr. Sanders, is that there's probably some, uh, some nuances to all of these things that we're hoping that you guys can share with us in terms of uh, being the experts and the gurus in terms of, you know, what are kind of your additions to these techniques and, uh, and, and, and why you do them. So certainly that's an avenue that we want to go down. So Dr. Sanders, what, what, what is your kind of uh, standard go-to technique? Well, I, I, I used to be a big posterior column osteotomy person when it sort of first became popular. And I've, I now tend to reserve it much more for kyphosis uh, and I do like the harmonic scalpel for doing it, but I resect the ligament of flavum. I resect the spear articular process and I, I'm doing it less and less for scoliosis over time. I'm not sure it makes that big a deal in terms of correction, but I do like to get the process out of the way. And I do like to get the flavum out of the way and where it's a tight area, I will continue to do it with the kerosene. There are, um, there are individuals who will leave that superior articular process What's the uh, what's your indication, or what do you think the benefits are of removing it? Um, at, I, I am <laughs> all of our lives are on anecdote, and one of my partners when I was uh, elsewhere uh, had he did the uh, fastectomy uh, and took out the spear articular process. It dropped into the canal, and there were signal changes and uh, and loss loss of. Uh, motor evoke potentials and required going back and getting that piece out before they resolve. So I, I'm very nervous about leaving a floating piece there. Reasonable. I'm just going to go down the line on my video screen and that's uh, Dr. Cicado's next. Yeah, thanks for the question. I, I think in terms of the technique, um, I typically use a traditional technique if I'm going to do it. And so take down the interspinous ligament. Uh, I typically do facetectomies first uh, is my normal routine and then take down the ligamentum and then the superior facet. So sort of the traditional, if you will, ponte or posterior column osteotomy. I love the bone scalpel for vertebral column resections because I think it allows you to really thin out that uh, the floor of the canal. And if you tend to breach the canal, or you broach the canal, you know, the bone scalpel is safe around the, around the cord. But I, I generally think the bone scalpel is, it's useful. One of my younger partner uses it for every case. Um, and so, you know, maybe a little bit of a generational thing. I don't think it saves on blood loss. I think it's a cool tool, but, you know, randomized trial shows no benefit in terms of blood loss uh, with respect to using the bone scalpel versus other techniques. And you're, you're, you're talking about even facetectomies. Yeah. I mean, a facetectomy is, I mean, think about how much blood loss you use on a facetectomy. It's almost nothing. And so bone scalpel is not going to move the needle on that. Got it. Dr. Scotto, just to harp on that, the point that Dr. Sanders made, do you make a cut through the superior articular facet and then leave the piece in place? Or do you go through the effort of retrieving uh, any sort of uh, top piece that you leave? 
Yeah, well, if, uh, Craig, great question. I think if you do uh, take your superior facet with a kerosene, I mean, you're taking it away. And so I think that's probably a discussion when you're using the bone scalpel, if you cut through using a bone scalpel, whether you need, leave it or not. I would agree with Jim. I, I would be very concerned about leaving something in the canal that's sort of floating, if you will, if you've cut it. Um, so, and it's not doing anything for you, right? It's just articular cartilage that's sitting there. Um, so it's not a fusion you know, something that's going to create fusion for you. Uh, Dr. Shah. So um, I teach the traditional way because I think we should um, stick with tradition and have everyone be able to do it anywhere in the world. Uh, but in practice, I do it with the ultrasonic scalpel. I virtually always leave the fragment in place because it's not floating. It's actually attached to very stout facet ligaments, except in instances where I want, I'm doing it for kyphosis reduction or it's a PSO because that fragment has been implicated in nerve root impingement, especially at the cervicothoracic junction. So I'll take it out in those two instances. Um, and I think one of the reasons for the bone scalpel initially was probably because of blood loss. You know, you get that epidural bleeding on that last lateral cut when you know you really shouldn't have done it. Um, but also ergonomically, I mean, how many times do you have to squeeze a kerosen to start getting carpal tunnel syndrome? So I'm um, cognizant of that and interested in career preservation using automated things whenever I can. And Dr. Crawford. Okay, sorry, uh, Hamish Crawford here. I removed the facet joints with um, the bone scalpel. I then removed the spinous process with a large rongeur. I used that to get through the ligamentum flavum. I then use the kerosens to go out wide. I don't leave any uh, loose bone in the canal, uh, near the canal. And I use a Watson chain to check that I've got a complete osteotomy after I've done it. I think just like to highlight Dan's point that it's really important, I think, to do the facetectomy first so that you're not doing that with an open canal, which I see some people do. So um, facetectomy first, then spinous process and ligamentum. Can I can I follow up with uh, what is a Watson chain? Oh, sorry, a Watson chains like a uh, McDonald or a uh, what you a nerve root feeler, some a, a, a smooth thing that you can actually you know normally you'd retract the nerve root with or um, uh, the dura. Just make sure that can go right out laterally uh, uh, through it. Lorena might be able to interpret any of my other ghost. <laughs> uh, she was our wonderful fellow a number of years back. So uh, she can be my interpreter for this uh, podcast. L Lorena, is the Watson chain similar to a Woodson or a nerve? It is, but there's like a little ball tip on the end that's very blunt. So, yeah. Have you, have you incorporated Lorena in, in Ohio? <laughs> uh, Watson chain or Ponte yes. or uh, Ponte Astyanomies. No, the Watson chain. You should say oh, yes. The by the way, no, I. Uh, <laughs> I did, can I? Can I? Oh, have I did a, want to follow up on uh, in terms of timing. If the panelists could comment on the timing of your osteotomy in terms of pedicle um, preparation and placement. Yeah, Lorraine, I'll take that one. Um, so the sequence is exposure as bloodless as possible, facetectomies, resection of the inferior process uh, of the spinous process with a spinous process cutter. I know many people use a large rongeur, but we have a spinous process cutter that actually makes a really nice sharp cut of the inferior third. That leaves um, you with the, the exposure of the ligamentum flavum. I'll thin that out with a smooth double action Lexel. Then I'll do everything we just described in terms of the SAP cut, and then I put my screws in. And I realize that may be a little different sequence than others, but um, I do that for a specific reason that if there are difficult screws because we're a freehand place, I'll be able to stick a Woodson or a Watson chain uh, in there and feel the medial shoulder of the pedicle and just go two millimeters uh, lateral to that. Dr. Shaw, can I follow up with you one question really quick? Do you, do you always take the uh, ligamentum flavum or is, is there any indication for leaving it? I always take it to get flexibility, but I think what you're really asking is when do I take it? And um, I take it right off the bat. I don't, I have a very sequential way of doing things. I don't like going back to something, but I know in San Diego, they'll take the ligament last because it leaves the canal vulnerable. Um, so we'll put some gel foam in there and be very careful about what's happening across the field and across the canal. Does anybody have a different sequence? I do, I do it different. I do it differently in terms of timing. Oh, sorry, Jim, go ahead. No, go ahead, Dan. I'll talk after you. Well, I, I think the concept of leaving the canal open 
as little time as possible is really important. I mean, avoiding neurologic deficit is our most feared complication. And I've had two calls in the last year of folks who've had the canal open and plunge into the canal exactly in this scenario. So I think it's really important, at least for me and my sequences, I do fast tactics just as Sukin said, and then I'll place screws up until the apex of the of where I'm going to do the pontes if I'm going to do them. And then <clears throat> I prepare the screws, put guide wires in, and then I take them out and I do my pontes one at a time uh, after the screws are prepared, and then I'll put the screws in. So, you know, it, it, the canals then open the rest of the case. But again, it's trying to limit that. I, I'm, I do freehand technique too. And so I think with a with a with a pedicle finder, I get worried about uh, sort of plunging into the canal or even having things drop a little bit in the canal, just a little bit, you know, may make your changes, uh, sensory changes happen. So that's typically my sequence. Once I get past, past the apex, I agree. I put gel foam and I'll put a patty uh, in to make sure everybody knows, hey, there's six osteotomies there and then continue on with the screws above the apex. Dan, I'm not far off from you. I actually put in the screws. I do the fastectomies, put in the screws with the with the canal fully protected. And then I take out the screws where I'm going to be doing the osteotomies, uh, cover them with bone wax. That way I've already got the sites prepared and I can just slip them back in at the end. And then I do the ponte osteotomies, take out the flaw. Well, I take out the flaw of them in the inferior articular or or the superior articular process and the inferior spinous process. So I'm, I'm look, doing all of that portion kind of at once. And then I go back and quickly replace the screws. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see with these modular systems. They've already been out, but they're becoming, I think, a little bit more popular, whether you can place the shank and then, you know, do your pontiosteotomy, then attach the head, uh, whichever head you want, whether it's a poly or fixed or... That's a nice alternative, Dan, to, to do it that way, because the just having the shank in there is probably not much of an obstruction, but when you have a real head on the screw, I find it very hard to get out laterally and do it, do it adequately. Yeah, I agree. Is anybody currently using a system that does that, though? I see shaking right. of heads from, uh, from I think, all four panelists. Yeah. Perfect. Ken, thanks for, uh, for moderating that. Um, this is, I think, the thing that most of us want to know, and most of um, the young surgeons listening are still probably coming up with in their head. And this is going to be each of our indications. Um, and mine have certainly changed over the short years I've been in practice. So I would like to go around the room and just hear what your indications are. And obviously there's exceptions and special things, but if you can think about what sort of case that you see where you just think to yourself, I need to use these, um, I, I, that's what we want to hear about right now. Could we start with uh, Dr. Sakato? Yeah, I think so. You know, as everybody knows, the Ponte was really described for hyperkyphosis. And I, as Jim Sanders said, I think that's a pretty well accepted uh, indication for this as you're shortening the posterior column. And so you're providing an opportunity for space to get filled in with, uh, you know, to shorten the posterior column. So I think that's a pretty good indication for it today. Having said that, I will say that I think today the game changer in implants has been, and remember that was developed in the 80s where Harrington instrumentation and hooks, et cetera, were done. And so I think the game changer today is not the pedicle screws. They've been around for 20 some odd years. I think it's the versatility and the, and the variety diameter stiffness metal that's available to us. And so, you know, the power of uh, using rods and multiple rods and multiple shaping of rods allows us to really gain great correction uh, with lots of uh, implants. And I think, you know, spine deformity is like any other disease, right? You have mild, moderate, and severe, and you probably ought to treat it with a it's dose dependent. I mean, if you have a really severe curve, you probably need to fill all the pedicles. You may need to do osteotomies and you may need to use a lot of advanced techniques with rods and correction. And so I think today, spending more time on thinking about that and not necessarily on osteotomies is the sort of philosophy that I really kind of lean on and, and been successful at. So I think pure kyphosis in a very severe curve is probably reasonable to use pontes. I don't think it's necessary in everyone. I think wide facetectomy is allowing the, the shingling of the superior facet underneath the uh, lamina above it, uh, taking down the posterior, you know, the uh, ligamentum is probably pretty reasonable to shorten the posterior column but I don't think you need to even do beyond that uh, in the typical Schurman's kyphosis in the 70 to 90 degree range. Above that's probably reasonable. I think the other place that's useful that I use it routinely is on lumbar curves, thoracolumbar lumbar curves, because I think 
The problem with plantar osteotomies is that in the thoracic spine, you know, the chest is uh, restricting you from deformity correction. And so, you know, larger curves, not only a spine deformity, it's a chest wall deformity. So I don't think a pontiosteotomy in a large uh, scoliosis provides any additive um, ability to gain correction. And I think there's data to support that. And so, um, and we can review some of that data. So I think the routine use of pontis is it's dangerous. Every every study that's shown that the spinal cord monitoring changes are higher, blood loss is more, and uh, the uh, ability to gain more correction is minimal at best. So those are my two indications, and I don't even use them routinely in those indications because I think the power of the rods and techniques, it's not just the screws and rods, it's how you use them and how you gain correction uh, and deformity. Correction in three planes is really the key today. Okay, so it's a tool in the toolbox, but it's not routinely used in your practice Nope. Those few cases. Uh, Dr. Sanders, would you comment next? Sure. So I, I will agree with Dan. First of all, the, the true indication for this is kyphosis because you can shorten the posterior column as you're doing that. And that's really the primary area for doing it. I started out doing a lot more pontiosteotomies probably 10 years ago. I was doing quite a few more than I do now. Uh, and over time, I've realized that you're probably not gaining a huge amount more correction. I think most of the tightness is within the annulus fibrosis and other things which are occurring up front rather than posteriorly. And then we've, we've uh, recently published our 40-year follow-up of Goldstein's patients with Harrington instrumentation. And what we found is that those patients over 40 years, despite having a hook at the top and a hook at the bottom and maybe a compression rod on the convexity, uh, did incredibly well over time. Their function really matches age match controls at 40 plus years after instrumentation infusion. And so, so when I started looking at that and what I feel like I can actually do by just spending a little additional time working on correction posteriorly and the changes, as Dan mentioned, that uh, all of the studies are showing that you get more neuromonitoring alerts, whether they're real or not at the end with doing the ponte osteotomies, I've come to the conclusion that they're really unessential uh, and just add a layer of danger that's really unnecessary for patients to get a correction that's going to be long-term satisfactory to them. Thanks, Jim. I think the, uh, the long-term Harrington data is uh, important to keep in mind and very compelling. Dr. Crawford, uh, any additional thoughts on uh, your specific indications? Uh, no, I think it's pretty well being covered. I must say... Um, there is some indications, I think, when you've got a significantly hypokyphotic um, uh, thoracic curve and that uh, with kyphosis, because you can, you know, when you're lengthening the posterior column to restore that uh, hypokyphosis, I think doing a uh, ponte, um, you, you do see it distract when you correct that. So that that is another possible consideration. Um, otherwise, the indications I use it for and I definitely am doing it less than I did previously because of all the papers that have come out of my own personal experience of not getting as big a correction as I thought, is that curve that's, that is a very tight um, uh, thoracic curve or thoracolumbar, as Dan said, that preoperatively you've got uh, side bending x-rays or traction x-rays which show that you're just, uh, am I going to do this all from the back or am I going to do am I going to be able to, do I need to do an anterior release? And when you're in there, you you wish you had done an anterior release, but you're stuck with this tight uh, curve. So the two reasons I do it then is I only do it at the apex. And one is actually, so for what we've talked about is that by opening the canal, I do like palpating the medial uh, wall of the pedicle, putting in those tight concave screws. But I'll sometimes uh, combine my pontiosteotomy with a rib osteotomy as well in order to get some uh, improved correction. I must say I'm usually underwhelmed by the correction I get and whether it makes me feel better or not, I'm not sure, but um, that would be my indication for doing it now as an intraoperative decision that it's still very tight um, and I wish I'd gone to the front to do a release. Yeah. So it sounds in your practice, uh, just to summarize uh, some extreme lordosis cases, you think there may be some applicability and then also for coronal plane issues that are more on the severe side, uh, yeah, the supplement with that. I, th I think with the kyphosis, you know, I, I still find the old Chevron osteotomy often works well enough. But what I have learned from doing Pontes is that 
I, I take my burr more after I've done my fascistectomy and really get rid of all the articular cartilage off that um, superior facet so that when I do do the kyphosis correction, my facets theoretically slide better to close up. So I may take a little bit of the, um, uh, make sure I've taken, well, I've taken enough of the facet so that it does close up. Uh, rather than doing a full ponte necessarily with a kyphosis. But if it's a, a severe stiff kyphosis, I'll, I'll, as the other um, panelists have said, I'll do a uh, ponte osteotomy and, and close that up, yeah. And then Dr. Shah, I know that you, for the most part, agree with these, so we'll just move on, unless you have anything else to add. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> um, I, I think one thing that's not at issue is... Um, uh, Professor Alberto Ponte did describe his osteotomy for the treatment of kyphosis. And uh, it's very effective for doing that. Um, but I think we're just using the pontiosteotomy as a convenient term for what we're doing is a posterior column osteotomy or posterior disarticulation of the posterior elements. And um, that's, that's really what, what we're trying to do for scoliosis. It's a really versatile uh, osteotomy. And yes, it was named uh, for doing kyphosis, but I find it so effective for treating virtually any kind of spinal deformity posteriorly. And you're seeing a lot of our adult deformity colleagues going away from three-column osteotomies and doing more PCOs, uh, in effect, getting the same sagittal plane restoration as they were without the risk of a three-column osteotomy. So a lot's been said about the increased time, blood loss, and neurologic alerts. And in all of those papers, including mine, it was early in our experience and we were just reporting what we were seeing. I don't think you're, if you looked at the last 50 cases I did, we have nearly the same parameters of blood loss time and transcranial motor evoked potential alerts that we did when we reported that initial paper. And it's not just about the coronal plane. It's about the sagittal plane. It's about the axial plane. And every cadaver study you look at, as you start to section those posterior elements, you get an increase in flexibility. All I'm trying to do is get every big stiff curve to act the same as a flexible smaller curve. And so putting in the rods is actually a very enjoyable experience, no matter what the degree or rigidity of the deformity is going to be, because I've equalized them all by making the stiff ones more flexible. Um, and when we talk about stronger and stiffer rods, you're very dependent on the bone screw interface. And I think that's an important point uh, that we should stress is that you can only work that lever or dial that up so much before you start to see screw pull out. Why not just make the spine more flexible so that's you're not hinging and, and nervous about that point as you're uh, getting the spine to come to an overkyphosed rod. But the last thing, and probably the most important thing I, I want to mention is that everybody on this cast um, is, a, is also um, training uh, residents and fellows. And when you look at everything written about deliberate practice and the practice of habit, you got to make something routine or you will, will not incorporate that into your habit. So why would you want to just use this powerful technique for the 90 degree rigid curve when you haven't done it for months and then expect to achieve the same proficiency and performance as you would if you did it every day? And I'll mute myself then. I can feel the responses coming. I think I heard saw all three of the others go on unmute at the same time. I think <laughs> this would transition very nicely into Lorena wants a modern discussion about true risks and benefits. Because I think that's where any sort of difference in opinion has to come with our perceptions of what is the true benefit and what is the true risk. So maybe we can start there and then nuance our indications a bit. Lorena? Yeah, I think uh, you said it well that this definitely does not come without risks as, as each of the panelists has mentioned, um, blood loss, operative time, and then neurologic risk. So you have to weigh that with your own perceived benefits of correction. Um, in all planes. So if, if each panelist could maybe respond to Dr. Shaw um, in terms of your own thoughts on indications, keeping in mind the, the risk and the benefit uh, decision too. Um, 
Well, I mean, I think the benefits indications for me is that stiff curve um, that intraoperatively I I feel is I want to mobilize more as Sukhan had shared, said. One thing I'd love the other panelists I wanted to ask was I'm really interested to know whether um, any of them have found segmental derotation easier with a um, uh, doing a ponte. Um, uh, I don't know how to measure that really, but I'd be interested if they could comment on that. In terms of the risks, and so what I think the question is why have I why am I doing less than I used to do? And that's because of the risks. And the risks for me personally is, you know, um increased blood loss by um um using the using the kerosinonger and getting an epidural and having to um stop that bleeding. I think um that's one risk. I don't think we do a lot, lose a lot of blood, but um, there's slightly increased blood loss. The, the main problem I've had is with um, neurologic changes intraoperatively. None have been persistent, but I find it very frustrating that um, I get changes neurologically when I didn't used to. And I think it is due to the ponte osteotomy. And I think it is because what happens is if you do multiple ones, it tends to sag. And I think you get um, hypolordosis during the case. So I, I position the patient with the bolsters closer together now than I used to to try and avoid that. But certainly um, that's been something that irritates me more than being a long-term problem during the case. The other, I think, potential longer-term problem, which we haven't seen yet, but I think we may see, is that by doing a pontiosteotomy, you're removing a lot of the fusion uh, area. You're taking away the facet fusion at that level. We're putting, you know, I put 5.5 or 6 millimeter cobalt chrome rods in almost routinely. So using very stiff constructs, which will hold up for a long time, but I'm not sure that the there's always getting a good fusion around that, even though we put a lot of bone grafts. That does worry me long term. So that's my indications and that's my slight concerns and why I'm doing, uh, I'd say, 50% less than what I used to do. Uh, maybe five years ago. And so, so Hamish, I'll, I'll kind of follow up on you here with this. It's that um, clearly the the place where you run into problems is at the apex, and that's where most of us are doing the pontiosteotomies. Uh, and when you're coming into that concavity, which is where you have the biggest risk, that's where you tend to get the bleeders because you can't see as well because it's a very tight canal down in that area. Uh, and uh, it's also where the cord is. And so you're, you're coming right into the area where the cord is sitting. And, and the question that I have is we're talking about the importance of axial and coronal correction. And with the pontiosteotomy, are we getting enough correction that it's within a threshold difference that really makes a difference to the patient in the end? Because Sukin's right. I mean, you, you're, the failure is going to be at the bone screw interface. And if I'm going to get a little bit more correction with a ponte osteotomy, uh, and is it five degrees? Is it two degrees of rotation? What is it that I'm actually getting compared to I was, where I was before? My impression is I've done, I've, I've done quite a few of these over the years, is that you get some but it's not a lot. My strong suspicion without having data to say so is that we're well below the threshold that makes any difference at all to the patient. And yet if something bad happens, we've crossed a threshold for the patient. Yeah, I would follow up on that, Jim. I think there, I mean, we, for the studies that we do, I mean, your long-term study on Harrington is, is, the, is sort of the epitome of what we try to do, really long-term studies and seeing if it makes a difference. I think the best data we have for Ponte versus no Ponte is uh, the harm study group looked at Ponte versus no Ponte and the average curve was 50 degrees and they showed a 6% improvement with Ponte osteotomies in the coronal plane and, and no other changes. And so, you know, 6% by my math class of a 50 degree curve is three degrees. And so, you know, that's not going to make a difference in a patient's uh, outcome, right? And so you Every study also shows intraoperative neuromonitoring risks that are higher. That, that, I mean, you can't argue with that. Whether it's zero versus 0.5%, it's still a big difference, you know, when you're talking about neurologic deficit. You know, Lorena pub published a very nice study from our institution. We said, okay, well, let's look at bigger curves. And so the average curve was 70 degrees. And again, we showed a difference, not in the coronal, not in the sagittal plane, or, and keep me honest here, Lorena, it wasn't in the axial plane, which we studied. 
it was in the coronal plane, it was a it was a nine percent difference, which turns out to be again six degrees. Uh, and that and so and when you look at patient reported outcomes, there's no difference in the data. So, you know, to Sukin's question, I think um, I think those are excellent points. I think the scroll screw built bone interface today. If you know how to use your screws and your rods effectively distribute the forces, I've not had a catastrophic screw pull out. I've screws back out a little bit, sort of at the end of correction with apex. But I think you know, with the with the techniques we have today, with the reduction towers, et cetera, and going really slow, and you have to kind of get fellows to kind of slow down. It's just engage the rod get a couple millimeters of correction because then the next one next to it's like why it wires and you just have laminar wires you tighten one the next one loosened up and so you just tighten them a little bit and you go down the line and so I think the deformity correction is not uh, valuable in the in the um, in the in the scoliosis patient I think the problem with scoliosis is that in the very lordotic spine it's not only a spine deformity it becomes a chest wall deformity unless you do something to the chest you're not gonna, like in a 90 degree curve, you're not gonna really impact that, that deformity um, unless you do something in addition to the spine, like someone said, I think it was uh, Hamish talked about uh, rib osteotomy. So um, I think in the routine idiopathic scoliosis, you know, it's great for talking about doing it. And I agree, you gotta teach the fellows how to do these because they're useful in some regards, but I would be very careful about saying we should use them routinely because you're gonna have a lot of longer cases with monitoring changes and really no outcome to the patients um, and what they perceive to be good result. This is Ken Ellingworth. Can I ask a question to the panelists about uh, the increased rates and in monitoring changes? What's kind of the theory on that? You know, why do we think we get those with our posterior column osteotomies? Again, I'm going to come back to, to where it is that you're doing these. You're doing these at the apex you're working in the convex and the concavity of the curve. And that's where the cord is. Uh, that's where you tend to get the bleeders. You can't see as well as you're doing those. And it's right where the cord is laying right up against those concave pedicles. So uh, it's, I think it's mostly a pressure phenomena uh, as, as you're doing them, but it, it certainly could have something to do with local vascularity as well. Yeah, I agree with Jim. I think that, you know, you're on the concave side, you know, you see that white dural sac when you're doing the ponte in a, in a severe curve. And so whether you're using a bone scalpel or whether, you, whether you're using a kerosene, you got to be touching the dural sac and the dural sac is, there's no CSF on that side. It's all cord, right? The, CS, the cord is right up against the, uh, um, up against the sac. And the convex side is where you get the bleeders because there's no concave, um, uh, epidurals there because the cord is there. So all your bleeders happen on the convex side and your monitoring changes that happen on the concave side. So, you know, I, I think we saw this a long time ago when we used to use sublaminar wires. The posterior elements used to get touched a little bit and the patient used to wake up with some funny sensory changes. And so I think it's a mechanical issue primarily. There's probably two types of alerts we're talking about, Ken. One is a direct contusion to the cord. And that's, I think what Jim uh, has, has referred to a couple of times when you're in the concave side with a kerosen, uh, the foot has to displace the, the dura and probably the intermedullary part a little bit to squeeze in there. Uh, and so then you should just uh, switch to a smaller kerosen or um, that might be a better indication for the ultrasonic scalpel if you're familiar with using that that way. Um, but then there's also the alert that happens because of distraction or relative ischemia. And the confounding variable with those alerts seems to be that that's gonna happen in bigger curves um, and in stiffer curves where you're trying to get more correction. Um, and so I think everybody here has experience with that and how to respond to those alerts is very important, but it, it may not be the osteotomy um, as the cause, but it's um, probably one of, the, one of the issues on the list. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think. Uh... You know, so you got to match the patients and, and larger curves. Every data set that looks at larger curves and monitoring changes in a large data set shows that larger curves are more likely to have monitoring changes for a lot of reasons, some of which we can just outline. Um, we talked a little bit about the other planes besides the coronal plane. So let's, let's leave the coronal plane aside a little bit and talk about the sagittal plane. And if we're using this osteotomy to allow it to safely distract and increase kyphosis, then I think what we have to really understand is that we're still looking at a lot of this in the 
only two dimensions. And virtually all of the papers don't have a significant amount of uh, 3D data and 3D capture uh, because the fundamental problem in AIS is when you measure the lateral X-ray, you are severely underestimating the loss of kyphosis there. And so when you start out with an error in measurement, you're not going to see that delta that, that Dan and Jim and Hamish want to see. So let's get accurate about looking at the preoperative state first and then understand what we're doing in 3D for kyphosis restoration. And to Hamish's earlier question about axial plane derotation, I find it tremendously easier to do segmental derotation when you've taken everything apart from the back. Otherwise, how else is it going to move in that segmental fashion? And, and Sukhan, I'm not going to argue with you on the points that you, you might be able to do a little bit more of it, but where I would come back is that with long-term Harrington instrumentation, again, uh, these patients are getting no segmental derotation. All they're getting is some distraction and their ultimate function is very good. And they're there. So when you come back to it, you go, what are we doing? Are, are we really gilding the lily on this? Or are we really making something that's better for patients in the end? I don't think it's gilding the lily. It's just, I think it's just trying to be better. Um, if you look at reciprocal cervical change and reciprocal lumbar change, yes, perhaps those patients that you studied um, weren't symptomatic yet, but we can always do better. And I think when we restore kyphosis better in the thoracic spine, it seems to drive the cervical and lumbar reciprocal change much better than if we leave them flat. So um, I can't, I mean, I'll ask you, Jim, based on the data that you just found out with Harrington, are you intentionally leaving your patients flat now? No, I'm not intentionally leaving them flat. I'm still trying to do good corrections, Sukhan. I think you, you know that. But at the same time, we have much more powerful techniques. We do try to use them to the maximum that we can safely. The question is, where do we start crossing sort of that threshold that we're really trying to push things further than they really need to be pushed for the benefit of patients? So Sukin, I mean, I, I'd respond by saying, again, what do we have in terms of the best data? And so again, back to Lorena's paper that was published a few years ago, we used, or she used this, you know, the... Uh, these weren't uh, EOS patients, so we didn't have 3D data, but we used the calculation, you know, based on the 2D and, and, and to the best of our knowledge, I mean, using that calculation, we could not demonstrate a difference in the thoracic spine in, in terms of, sorry, in terms of thoracic kyphosis and restoration of thoracic kyphosis. So, you know, I think the best data we have today doesn't speak to what you're saying. And so I think we got to be careful uh, with that. As you know, in the HARM study group, we're now looking at uh, Pontes versus no Pontes and trying to keep it in very clean data. And we looked at 1A curves and looked at as best we can the 3D data. And again, could not demonstrate any difference in the coronal or the, or the uh, axial plane and showed a mild difference in the thoracic kyphosis. So you know, I think the best data we have today doesn't speak to the use of Pontes. Um, and I think uh, we have to be really careful about recommending them in, in idiopathic scoliosis um, for any really good data-driven reason. I, I think the challenge is that when we're talking about the osteotomies, we're talking about the apex of the curve. And the apex of the curve falls within the fusion area. And ultimately, my impression from the longer-term work is that it's actually not the fusion area that matters. It's the non-fused areas in terms of how they're going to behave. Uh, we had a much higher revision rate if the Harrington instrumentation went down to L4 uh, or below compared to stopping at L3 or below. That They still had okay outcomes, but there, there was a much higher revision rate. And I think that's because of the contour of what's going on down at the ends. And so in the end, the long-term outcome seems to be far more related to what's happening to the invertebra of your fusion construct rather than what's happening to the apex of your fusion construct. Yeah, but they're all, don't you, wouldn't you agree, Jim? I think to Sugan's point, they are related, right? If, the, if, the, if you don't restore thoracic kyphosis, which we are doing today, then the end vertebra will be affected and below that, the uninstrumented segments will be affected. To some degree, Dan, but not entirely, because you still have a lot more control over those non-apical areas in terms of where they're going to go at the end of your construct by doing your rod contouring uh, than you do over some of those apical areas, which just fall within the fusion mass. Yep. Fair so enough. I, I, would, I agree, Dan. I think we, we have a gap um, with 
with the evidence and we should continue to pursue that before this recommendation becomes uh, routine. But, you know, um, well, one thing we tried to look at, well, what are, what are the factors that are important in kyphosis restoration? If we all agree that kyphosis restoration is a good thing, what are those factors? And um, we're, you're right, Ponte didn't, the PCO didn't rise to the top. The thing that seemed to matter the most in the correlation was who the surgeon was. So it seems to be multifactorial. And rod contouring may be a really important piece of that. And when you look at rod contouring, it's all over the place. Maybe we should have another discussion on, on rod contouring and how people do that and what differential contouring is to really understand how that imparts uh, a three-dimensional correction and the efficient ways to do that. Because that could be the missing link between why some of this, these, these issues um, don't, don't get borne out in the studies beyond maybe something that's statistically significant and not clinically important. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that, again, how you use the tools in the toolbox is very, very important. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, at one point in time, five years ago, I used the exact same irons as Jordan Spieth. And that's where the similarities ended. <laughs> My striking the golf ball and Jordan Spieth striking the golf ball with the same exact AP2 Titleist, completely different, right? So you, I agree. And so to your point earlier about um, deliberate learning and 10,000 hours, I think that stuff, it's really important that we teach the next generation how to use these fancy expensive tools that we're blessed to have in our toolbox uh, in terms of the metal implants. And so um, I can see you've come around on not using osteotomies and you run a focus on rod contouring. I think that's the, definitely the way to go. So congratulations. <laughs> this, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't submitted anything. <laughs> I don't know. It sounded that way. I'm not sure which way you want to go with this, Craig, but it sounded that way to me. This panel has moderated itself. We just got to shut up. I think um, Sue can raise it. So you can raise an important point about surgeon, difference between surgeons. I think if you're going to do a ponte osteotomy, you need to do it properly. So, you know, I've seen surgeons do it and it's not a complete osteotomy. So it's probably nothing at all. So I think if you're going to do it, you need to use that uh, funny Watson chain thing to make sure that you have completed <laughs> it properly. And I, I know, Dan, when Lorena came to me after she'd done a fellowship with you, she sort of asked me whether I did a proper one or not. And I didn't quite know what that meant. But uh, <laughs> I, when I showed her what I did, she said that was a proper one. So that was good. So uh, yeah, that's good. What she hey, I want you to send to each of us a Watson chain. I, we, <laughs> right. That's the biggest learning thing tonight. <laughs> Um, if I know uh, Dr. Crawford has to leave fairly soon, but I thought that we would uh, get kind of specific with some of this and quickly show some cases um, that maybe uh, will end up in the panel discussion. And so I just want to hear going through the panel in order. Uh, if you would do posterior column osteotomies on the case presented. So this first case is a 15 year old female AIS. She looks like a lanky 1A with a 55 degree curve. And there's some bending films here, but I don't have the measurements, but it looks, I would say, moderately flexible. Can we start with Dr. Sanders? Sure, I would not do ponte osteotomies on this. Uh, Dr. Crawford? Um, I would do ponte osteotomies on this, this girl, not so much because of the coronal, but because of the sagittal uh, profile and that she's got severe she's actually got lordosis in the lumbus in the thoracic spine which i want to restore with a stiff rod and she's got a large amount of rotation there so we're probably underestimating that degree of lordosis she's also kyphotic through the thoracolumbar junction so it's going to be a long fusion i think getting her sagittal profile is going to be really important so i would do it for her and and cut me out craig if i should not ask a question but to hamath do you actually think that you increase your ability to get kyphosis by doing the ponte osteotomies? Because all you're doing on those is you're actually using the vertebral body below and its facets to improve the kyphosis on the level above or below it when you're pulling these things up. So do you think that makes a difference? It makes a difference clearly in kyphosis, I think. But uh, lordosis, that doesn't make as much sense to me. That's a rod contouring issue. 
Well, I, th I think it, it makes it, when you're putting in a, a big rod to, to help prevent that rod pull out and things, I think you're mobilizing the spine better from the back. And I think there's, uh, uh, when, you know, when you pull it up to the rod, the distraction that occurs is not insignificant when you do that. So I personally do find it easier, yeah. You're speaking to a tension band, sort of like the, the posterior column needs to lengthen and the uh, yeah. tension helps that. Uh, Dr. Sakato? Yeah, I wouldn't, as you, as you, I'm sure you can imagine, I would not. But I think, again, speaking to this, I completely agree with Hamish. This is very lordotic. And it's probably, as Sukin mentioned earlier, you know, a 3D, there's a, there's a lateral of the patient, not a lateral of the spine. And so the lordosis is probably even more severe. So to me, I'd load up more than I would typically do on a 55 degree uh, curve on, with screws on that left side and, you know, 5.5 five and 6.0 screws even at the apex. And I would, over contour a 6.0 cobalt chrome rod, and maybe even a, you know, some of the companies have these sort of um, yardstick sort of shaped rods where one dimension is taller than the other. And so the yield strength is much higher in the sagittal plane and really pull up on that spine and lock it in proximally and distally, and then just use a lot of reducers gradually over time to pull that up and then put the right rod in with almost flat and then just push down on that rotational uh, aspect on the right side. And if I was not happy with the sagittal plane, I would take out the left rod, recontour another rod, because now you're past the yield strength and pull up again, loosening up the right rod. And you've got to go through a few little gym, uh, things to, to get that correctly. We did that today on a 85 degree curve that the sagittal plane just looked like this. And it restored it by 15 more degrees in the sagittal plane on post-op uh, x-ray or intraoperative x-rays on the table. So I think the sagittal plane is critical. Look at the lumbar spine. It's, it's flat, as, as Hamish and Jim said. So that's what I would do on this one. And uh, Dr. Shah? Yeah, I definitely would. Um, for all the reasons stated regarding the sagittal plane, I think it's going to um, work out really nicely to do differential rod contouring. And um, everything we spoke about earlier should, should work out. I agree. It's going to be a long fusion. Now, what's happening at the junction of the main thoracic curve at the thoracolumbar junction um, may not be necessarily real kyphosis. I would say we need to do um, we need to do a 3D analysis here. And by the same token, the proximal thoracic curve might look a little bit kyphotic. So is this really a lanky two rather than um, a more apparent lanky one AR? Uh, so those are all fine points that are going to factor more into choosing uh, the upper and lower levels rather than whether we're doing uh, an osteotomy here or not. But I would do it for the sagittal plane here. Okay, Ken, you want to present this one? Yeah, so 13-year-old uh, female who's a Sanders 4 who has this uh, very large 81-degree right thoracolumbar curvature, and we can see the bending films over here on, on the right, uh, which shows it bends out to about 43 degrees with what looks like a structural proximal thoracic curve. Let's start with Dr. Shaw, since he went, he went last last time. He gets the first word this time. So the... My answer is yes. <laughs> Perfect. There you go. I, th I feel like the answers are going to be may maybe similar here. Uh, Dr. Crawford? Well, I, I, I do a traction film on this patient rather than side bending. So I, I find that more useful in a long curve like this, 81 degrees. And uh, I get the impression it's reasonably flexible, actually. And um, so I would make an interoperative decision. And uh, um, at 81, it probably it looks like it bends down. It's bending down 50%. Uh, so traction, it may be bending more than that. So if I can get it balanced without, I may not. But uh, if I needed to interoperatively and I wished I'd done a release, I, I would uh, not hesitate to do it if I had to. But uh, I'd be airing more on the side. Maybe not. I'd be trying not to have to do it. But I wouldn't worry me if I did. Yeah. You talked about intraoperative decision making. Can you talk to us a yeah. little bit about how you, how you do that in terms of assessing it? Yeah, so I put the um, uh, with the patient obviously you know anesthetized, relaxed, with, and uh, knowing about my traction film in this case preoperatively, um, I would I would just push on the on the convex side to see how much correction occurred intraoperatively, and I'm surprised sometimes how actually well a lot of these correct more than you even think. Uh, intraoperatively. So um, if it looked like it was, um, I suppose it's just a Gisalt feeling that it was uh, going to do fine with a reasonably stiff rod, then um, I wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't do Pontes. The other comment I just make with Pontes is some people use bands 
you know, to back up their screws if there's very small um, uh, um, pedicles. And, you know, sometimes if you use an intraoperative um, O-arm or something, you can see that you've got lots of small pedicles. Be wary not to do your, you know, pontiosteotomies where you're thinking about putting a band because you do weaken the lamina significantly if you are using that technique. And, I mean, we use it occasionally in different pathologies, but that is something just to be to think about uh, if you're trying to get, think you have to put something in to back up your screws and doing a big correction. Dr. Sicato, should we uh, ask for the opinion on the uh, posterior columns here or or uh, move on to Dr. Sanders? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to answer. I mean, I think this, this one is a little in contrast to what Hamish was, I think, talking about before. You know, this is a long curve. And so, you know, if you say I have an 81 degree curve, a right thoracic curve, this is not the x-ray that's going to come to my mind initially, you know, because this is this is a thoracic curve, unlike I think someone called it a thoracolumbar curve because the apex is in the thoracic spine. This is a long sweeping thoracic curve. So I don't think it's a tight junction as Hamish was talking about before. And, and one of the indications he uses is a ponte. So for that reason, the size of the pedicles, the bend films, uh, you know, the sagittal plane is not super, unless uh, to Sukin's point, you know, you can't necessarily see that on the lateral x-ray completely. I think this would be a bit of a game time decision. I would consider it, but I think this is a curve that I would uh, be very comfortable and look at the rib deformity. This is a chest and a spine deformity. And so I, I think a pontiosteotomy here, I would probably end up not doing it. And I think you would see an enormous amount of correction in all three planes based on a lot of good techniques. And you know, uh, this is, I do have a conflict of interest on this. This this would be a great case for the rod link reducer, which we developed and licensed to one of the spine companies. And, you know, the royalties on it is peanuts, but because you just buy one of them if you're going to use them. But this is a beautiful way on the convex side to gain as much correction and get to a different starting point, keeping the apex free. You put your left rod in with a 6-0 cobalt chrome stiff rod. You draw the apex up while the rod link is still in place. Uh, it takes advantage of big moment arms, and it's a, basically a big external fixer you put on the spine, and then you take it off sort of near, let's say, two-thirds to three-quarters of correction, and it's a beautiful way to get this corrected in all three planes. And Dr. Sanders, last but not least. Sure. Well, I, I guess the question is what's really bothering the patient with this. Uh, my suspicion is that the patient has a fairly large rib prominence, and that's probably what is most disturbing to them and it's it, they're let's say let's say they're not in in Vanderbilt and they're in Los Angeles so cosmesis is a huge huge deal and, yeah clearly clearly and so this is a cosmetic operation so we're going to send them to a plastic surgeon rather than an orthopedist to take care of it um so I would go back to some of the same things how flexible is this curve is this something that rotationally is going to be correctable easily uh, if it is not rotationally correctable easily, I don't think you're going to gain enough by doing the pontiosteotomies that uh, this patient is going to be, that she is going to be happy with this. And uh, if that's the case, then you're probably going to want to do something on the ribs themselves to, to treat that deformity. It really depends on where they are. And ultimately, again, I would go back to that you need to have very good sagittal contours on these rods at the lowest and the upper uh, most levels of your instrumentation to have a normal upper thoracic kyphosis, which doesn't look bad, but you want to make sure that you've got a good lumbar lordosis as you're going down into those lower segments down there. It, I would make it much like Hamish said, this would be a game time decision. My suspicion looking at this is that the pontiosteotomies, uh, sorry, Sukin using the, uh, using the name rather than, uh, posterior column osteotomies, which I probably should, uh, is probably not going to make that big a difference. And by the time you've done your instrumentation, by the time you've gotten everything in there, uh, I'm probably going to be going, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to need these to do it would be my bet. All right. We're going to, we're going to hold the discussion there for the sake of time. And I really do appreciate all of our panelists uh, for being here and sharing their opinions. I think a lot of wisdom was shared today. Um, any, any parting thoughts from the panelists and then the host? PCOs forever. <laughs> okay, all PCOs forever. I thought it was a great discussion. I know you guys did a great job. I, although we have differences, I think that it was a great discussion and very respectful comments to each other or with each other. So great job. I appreciate being, uh, it's an honor to be here and I'm sure everyone feels the same. Thank you. And I'm very appreciative of this. I think we're all in full agreement that the sagittal plane matters a lot. 
Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure to be part of it. And uh, if uh, anyone knows of any uh, fellows who'd love to come down here, if they're as good as Lorena, we'd love to have them uh, at the Starship for a, a year anytime. So uh, thanks very much for putting this together. Thanks for asking me. You have one of ours right now, man. Every, every, I know, year, every uh, year we send somebody. He's doing a great job. You know, they all come down to educate me. So thanks, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> no. They always report back and say, hey, listen, Hamish does it this way. You should do it this way. So, <laughs> Well, I'll send you all the Watson chain for Christmas. I'll see you at eyeballs. That's a good way to finish. See you guys. <laughs>